0: We're going to continue this morning through our Acts series. We've been studying for the last almost two months now. Um, through the book of Acts, but not verse by verse, we're looking at it more thematically, which if you've spent any time with us, that's actually a little bit different. We usually like to take a book, um, unpack it within the context, and um, hear the Lord, but we feel like the Lord has been speaking to us to teach the book of Acts under the... Um, Title of the power and the proclamation, the witness of the church, and the power of the gospel to save lives. Uh, before we jump into it, I just want to say, because it was a quick couple of weekends, Shannon and I were gone at Southlands Fullerton two weekends ago, and then we had Alan and Rennell here. So I said it last week, but I just want to say again, Southlands Fullerton welcomes Capital City Church. And when I say that, I just, you guys have to know how much they love us here. And Some of you have never met a single person from there, or some of you have only met perhaps the lead elder and his wife, but you have to know the amount of affection and knittedness that comes from Southlands, the whole Southlands community, but Southlands Fullerton. So I said it, they greet us, but really the Church of Fullerton greets you guys um, here in Sacramento with faith and love, and they have a ton of um, expectancy for what God is doing with us right now. Shannon and I had a great time of, we spent a number of days down there. We met with their musicians. We met with their elders. We met with random people. It was go, 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 but it was like, it just felt like more of this. And I know that's easy for me to feel that way because Shannon and I are the ones that are down there. And there's a little bit of a disconnect for you perhaps. But just know that who we are is getting into them and who they are is getting into us. And that's a good thing because we're in partnership for the gospel. So um, I want to welcome you again from that church, and just make sure that I had stated that. In addition, so thankful for the visible aspect of partnership, to have Alan and Rennell come and to be with us. Alan, for those of you who don't know, Alan is, not only leads Southlands, all the churches in terms of, the uh, he leads Southlands Brea, but he's part of the leadership, the eldership of course for all the Southlands communities. He's also involved in the advanced partnership that we're a part of in leading that So he's traveling, and those guys are going. And they're planting churches in Thailand, just through Southlands, and they're planting churches in the United States. And So his time is is, um, valuable and precious, but he loves us, and they love to be with us. And they had so many good things to say. Just riding home after last Sunday's worship, um, he was so filled with faith. Because as you guys know, as he said, he was here on February 4th of 2018 for the handover, And just in that year's time, he was saying how remarkable um, things have been not improving because that makes it sound like it was bad before. (laughs) But the Lord is with us. The Lord is upon us. The Lord is leading us. There's movement. And so they've got a ton of faith. So I was so thankful for them as they come in and just build into our foundation. They met with our leadership team on Saturday, and he just poured into us. And, man, I tell you, that's got to be exhausting. They flew up from a Friday to a Monday, and they were on the whole time. Just conversing and questions and input and prayer and, you know, what he brought last Sunday was not what he was going to teach, but after Saturday, he just felt like he needed to shift. So you guys, I I share that with you to know it's not just like, hey, guest speaker, you know, the eldership team here has a week off. It's like in the trenches, what is God saying? Let's maximize this time with each other. So um, that was awesome, great visible representation of our partnership outside of just Sacramento. So hopefully you guys gleaned from it um, as much as, as we did. Um, I've been just mulling over what Alan said, and I, I don't want to move past it too fast. So go back. If you took notes, look at your notes, or go stream again the teaching. It was really profound out of Acts chapter 3. And I feel like if I can just tone in for a moment, and this, and I'm going to do this quick because I don't want to waste a whole lot of time because I've got a lot to say today, but I just want to say this. He made a, a comment of Acts 3 when Peter and John walk past or going, are going to the temple and they see the lame beggar and they say, look at us. And he talked about allowing ourselves to be interruptible. And, I re- and then he went on, and that was his first of four points. And he went on to say three really wonderful things. But I felt like for us as a church, that was one of the more significant points that he made. Looking for those moments of holy interruption, he said, above and beyond the earthly distractions. The juxtaposition of a holy interruption as opposed to an earthly distraction. How easy it is, and we know this, and I don't even have to say it, how easily we get distracted. But if we are attuned to what God is speaking to us by his spirit in those moment to moment of our lives and of our days, um, I believe that that's for us, and that's where really the Lord is going to mobilize us more and more. And it made me think of just Hebrews 12.1. Let us cast off the things that hinder, not just the sin, but the things that hinder us. What are the things that hinder us? What's hindering us right now to run that race at full speed? So I was really, really appreciative um, of what Alan brought last week. And so we set out through Acts Um, We said a number of months ago that it's our intent as an eldership team to change the culture of Capital City Church, a culture that has been very mindful of our theology, diligent in our understanding, but yet almost to a detriment of our sending and our going. And we feel like this is a season where God is going to change the DNA, if you will, the fabric of who we are as a community, to a mobilizing to a sending, to a mobilized and a sent people, to really embrace the commissioning of to proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. And I have you have to know, I have a ton of faith for this right now. I really do. And I feel like the things that we're embracing more, just the 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 strong emphasis of prayer, as we're exhorting you to come and pray with us, the emphasis of of setting ourselves apart, whether it's through fasting or what other type of Um, things that we can do in our own personal lives, to our culture here of expectation um, and a culture of response to what God is saying. I feel like all of those things that have been who we are but perhaps fell a little bit dormant through our journey of God just building into our deep, rich theological foundation, there seems to be a surge of them again. And so come expectant, come looking, come desiring, come... Um, seeking to respond in your own hearts and to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe that we're going to be mobilized as a community and um, to see this city of Sacramento change. So we've been uh, studying through the book of Acts. We've we've seen many, many good and important things. We've looked at what it means to be a witness. What is a witness? What does that mean to be a witness? That we are witnesses and that our witnessing comes a result of who we are. We looked at the providence of God in our proclamation. We looked at the sufficiency of the gospel to reach every person in every people group at every corner of the earth. We looked at the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us in our gospel proclamation. And we looked at the power of the community of the church as a witness. And those are just a few, and there's been more as well. And today we come to the very important and somewhat difficult, depending on how you look at it, subject, of the sovereignty of God in the gospel proclamation. The sovereignty of God in the gospel proclamation. When we speak of God's sovereignty, or God being sovereign, this is just to begin. I don't want to take anything for granted as though we all have the same reference or beginning point. God's sovereignty, when we speak of God being sovereign, we're speaking of the will of God being executed within his plan for mankind. God's will being executed according to his will, according to his plan. That's God's sovereignty. God, the author and the source of all that is good, working through choices and circumstances to bring into effect his perfect will. And there's so much more that can be said about that, but I just give you that statement to begin, because when we start there, understanding that it's God that is at work according to his own plan. That has a great effect on how we walk into the subject of his sovereignty within the proclamation of the gospel. It is God's will. It is God at work in his own will to bring about his own plan. That is what it is for God to be sovereign. For some of us, within this idea of salvation, within this within this, um, this, this understanding of God's sovereignty to save, this is a question that we've wrestled with. Perhaps you've wrestled with it for some time and you've not come to a conclusion, or perhaps you have come to a place of faith, or perhaps it's not even a question you've thought of before. I think we're all perhaps at different places within this journey of understanding how God calls people unto himself through the proclamation of the gospel. The question often arises if the if Jesus' death was a sacrifice once for all, why does God save some but not all? If the death of Christ was for all of mankind, why is it that not all believe on him? This is a question that you have probably wrestled with at some point in your life. And in some respects, I would say the answer to this question is quite simple. We don't know. That sounds like a cop-out, doesn't it? But there's truth to that statement. We don't know. We do not know the plan of God and the will of God and the thoughts of God to accomplish his end result. And there is a position that we must take as his creatures in that position of we don't know. But more importantly, I believe that the question for us today is not the why within God's sovereign plan? Why does he choose some and not others? Why did he give himself for all but not all believe? But the what? What is our response as a community, as a Christian? Again, perhaps never thought of that before or perhaps have wrestled with it and you cannot come to some conclusion. What is our response as a community to the sovereignty of God in the proclamation of the gospel? What is our response to this truth that God chooses those whom He saves? Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. I'm going to use this text. I'm not going to teach one particular text. I just want you to know that, I'm hitting it more from an overview and a, you, for, you have to forgive me because, again, this is a big subject, but I want to land in a place of faith for us today that I believe God wants to speak to us in. But I can't get there until we hit some of this tough stuff, all right? Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read from the ESV. I apologize for the media. I just chose at the last minute to read this portion of the text. So Peter opened his mouth. Actually, it's back up to verse 33. Acts chapter 10, verse 33. This is Peter... And Cornelius, this is Cornelius speaking to Peter after Peter has come to meet with him. God spoke to Peter in a dream. You guys remember that in Acts chapter 10, verse 33. So I sent for you at once, says Cornelius, and you have been kind enough to come. I love the statement. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. No pressure, Paul, right? We're all here. Get speaking. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace, this is a key. As for the word that he sent to Israel, what is the word? Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, The universal invitation of Jesus Christ's death for all of mankind, for God shows no partiality, it says. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what's right is acceptable to him. And then it ends in verse 43. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin throughout, forgiveness of sin through his name. Throughout the book of Acts, as well as many other books in the New Testament, we're faced with what seems to be somewhat of a biblical contradiction, which in and of itself is a contradiction, right? The Bible cannot contradict itself, but seemingly a biblical contradiction. It is the matter that salvation through Christ Jesus is offered to all of mankind without restraint, which is said of right here in this text that we just read. Yet God does not choose all to believe upon him. In other words, through Jesus Christ, there exists a universal invitation for all to come to faith without exception. That's important. <coughs> Through Jesus Christ, there exists a universal invitation. But as we know, not all do, nor will they all. I want to look at just a couple of texts here. These are well-known texts, but I want to just build this idea as we move towards my, my landing for today. I don't even need to put it up, but I'm going to do it anyway so that you can see the words. The universal invitation. Texts like John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him. Joel 2.32, Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Revelation twenty two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. So this universal invitation. But yet, then we have texts. Oh, and excuse me, and also in verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 34, which we just read, where God shows no partiality. And it says, anyone who and he and does what's right is acceptable to him. That word acceptable in the Greek is the word "welcomed." Anyone who do, does what's right, is, anyone who does what's right is welcomed by him. But yet on the other hand, we have these verses that seem to stand in contrast and in contradiction. Acts 2, verse 39. Do I have it here? Yes, I do. Is it there, yeah? Acts 2, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So now here we seem to have a different perspective. The invitation is universal, but yet God calls some to himself. Acts chapter 2, verses 46. I'm just throwing some text at you, and I'm hoping not to muddy the waters But I want to lay this out before you, and then we're going to, trust me, we're going to get to a point quickly. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. 47, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So again, the work of the Lord to call and to draw. And lastly, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And it says this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Interesting statements, right? Difficult statements, are they not? So on the one hand, we see that the gospel has been given freely, that all are welcome, that all who desire can come without partiality. Yet on the other hand, Scripture's clear that it's the Lord who both chooses and draws men and women to himself. As many as were appointed that day to eternal life believed. So what do we do with texts like this? What do we do when they're seemingly in opposition to one another? Do we ignore them? Do we try to reason them away? Sometimes. Sometimes we read around them. Sometimes it's difficult First and foremost, let me say this. It's right and good for us to come to a place of faith in these matters. We must come to some place of faith. You must come to a place of faith and belief. As difficult as these texts are, so that requires study. That requires diligence. That requires you to wrestle before the Lord and to allow the Lord to speak to you. And obviously, it's our responsibility as elders as well to help work through and to help teach and to help instruct what we believe is revealed within the word of God. (coughs) But my goal today isn't to lay out an argument. So the the common argument is between universal atonement and particular atonement. Does God save all or does God save some? And that's a difficult passage. And here's what I want to say today. I want to give us a couple of perspectives as His created beings. I want to give us a couple of perspectives that I think is right and helpful for us. And then I want to move to a place of faith of what I believe is important for us as believers as we wrestle with things like this. The first one is this. In matters of difficulty within Scripture, we must first remember that we are His creation. That's an important fact. That means that someone has created us. That means that there is someone who is higher than us who is more intelligent than us, whose ways and thoughts and plans are not our own. And we must hold ourselves in right perspective of this very thing, so that when there are difficulties within Scripture, or when someone raises some type of argument that seems to be texts that contradict themselves, we have to remember that our thoughts are not his and that our ways are not his, that we are the created being. Paul says this in Romans chapter nine, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God, right? And we know God's response to Job. It's like chapters long of shut the heck up, Job. I'm gonna put you in your place. He does, he finishes it by saying, can a fault finder contend with the Almighty? That's God's the finale of God's point to Job. Can a fault finder contend with the Almighty? This isn't for us just to, skirt these difficult things. And I just want you to know, I'm not going to jump into the debate today. That's not what I'm going to do. I feel like the Lord spoke something to me. But I want to acknowledge it because it exists. And I want to encourage you as believers to come to a place of faith in it today. And I'm going to help you, I think, do that in this today. The second is, as is creation, we must not be surprised when we find mysteries such as these within Scripture. Because the creator is far superior and incomprehensible to us. And this is how it should be. Should it not? I don't want to worship someone that's like me. I've got nothing to offer. But it's him. And so we hold ourselves in light of this. We are his creation. And as his creation, there are things about him that are unknowable and ought to be unknowable. And we must come to a place at some point of faith where we just say, and I'm resigned to leave it at that. And praise be to God for that. I think too, sometimes we like to scoff at God. We like to argue with God. We like to elevate our thinking to the place of God. We like to try to reason away certain things of what scripture reveals to us. I think we like to elevate our ability to comprehend. And I think God today wants to remind us, just submit yourself. Submit yourself to me. Certain things are the Lord's. The secret things belong to the Lord, Moses said. But the things that are revealed belongs to us. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us. So what is our response? I wrestled with this throughout the week, I have to be honest with you. I did not want to teach on election. I didn't. I felt like it was contrary to what God is doing through us and speaking to us throughout the book of Acts. And I said a moment ago, I think that this is somewhat of where we have gotten to where we're at right now in terms of our theology. So I wrestled with this, and then I realized this thing. All throughout the New Testament, reading the New Testament, men and women, the church was mobilized, taking the gospel throughout the earth, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we read here, as Peter does, speaks to Cornelius. There's nothing on the atonement that Peter speaks to Cornelius. What does he do? He speaks Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, all throughout the New Testament, That's the pattern that we see. The proclamation of the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, alive. The reconciliation of our lives to him. On his behalf, conciliated to us. Aside from what we could do. Men and women are not called to believe in a theological truth, but rather they're pointed rather diligently towards Jesus Christ, Without discrimination, as we read in some of those texts today, they're not called to believe some big theological comprehension. They're called to put their faith in and on Jesus Christ. And this is where God's sovereignty comes into play. As we know, it's not us who save, it's God who saves, it's God who calls, it's God who draws. We are the mouthpiece for the gospel. And what God chooses to do in and through us is God's. It's not ours. And it's best to leave it to him. And so here, the sovereignty of God finds its way into the conversation. That as we speak, he moves. And we are not called to speak on something other than what he has commanded us to, which is Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, resurrected, living, ruling, Calling and drawing the hearts of men and women. There's no call for them to place their lives in whatever extent the atonement was. Their message was solely one that pointed men and women to Jesus the Messiah. I felt that I was reading this book, which was so fantastic, and I came across this quote from J.I. Packer. He says this concerning this thing, this very point. The gospel is not, believe that Christ died for everybody's sins, and therefore yours, any more than it is, believe that Christ died only for certain people's sins, and so perhaps not yours. Here's the point. The gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sins, and now offers you himself as your Savior. That's the gospel. I'm telling you, that was so freeing for me. I love to think about theology, and as an eldership team, I think we're really strong in that regard. I'm privileged to walk with guys who are way more seasoned and learned and have thought and read through these things, and so we have lots of conversations, but for me, it was so freeing when I realized, you're right. We're not calling anybody to this theological understanding of the extent of the atonement. We're calling people to come and to be reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. And I believe today, and again, I don't know where where we're all at as a church, but I know we've taught this for many years, whether explicitly or implicitly. And I know that we've wrestled through some of these things before. And I feel like today, the Lord wants to renew just a sense of, of excitement for the simplicity of the gospel and a sense of, I can take this I don't have to be concerned about answering these big theological conundrums that present themselves at times. It's about the gospel, and the gospel is simple because the gospel is approachable, and the gospel is universal. So how do we respond to this? Before I hit three things and then land, I wanted to say this. I think that we get caught up in our theology sometimes to the detriment of our missiology, our going, our sending. I think we can major on things that are important, but in the light of the mandate of the church, they're not the most important. The most important is that we would go and we would proclaim the gospel. So, in light of this view of sovereignty of God, within salvation, I want to give us three imperatives that I think it calls us to act upon. And these are not deeply profound, but let them sink in this morning and let them stir your heart The first one is this, God's sovereignty produces a necessity to witness. Contrary to what is often stated in terms of these particular theological positions, the argument is often, well, if God is sovereign and God will save whom he wills, what's the point of preaching the gospel? That's often a question that you hear depending on what side of the discussion you're on. Or engaged within. Let me say this first and foremost no man or woman can be saved without the gospel. That's an important fact. No man or woman can be saved without the gospel. No man or child will come to faith unless they've heard the gospel. That's important. Because what does that require? Preaching and speaking and opening our mouths. A witness is a powerful thing, but it's not the proclamation of the gospel. Creation is a powerful witness, but it's not the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is the opening of our mouths as his chosen instruments and ambassadors and speaking the words of Christ crucified and risen and resurrected. That's important because I myself have given to, I'm just going to let my witness be the speaking right now. I'm going to let them see the life that I live, and that can be a powerful attraction, but it falls short ultimately of God's intended purpose. Regardless of our view or understanding on election and the atonement, the reality is is that no one will know unless the gospel is first proclaimed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. I've read this a couple of times since we've been in Acts, but I'm going to read it again. Romans 10, beginning in verse 11. No one can be saved without the gospel. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There's that universal invitation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will what? Be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Good point, Paul. And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? Well, an even better point. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is a very simple and basic point but we have to open our mouths. God's sovereignty produces a necessity for witness because he's chosen us to be the instruments by which the gospel will be spread. So it's not, if God's gonna save him, God's gonna save him. No, open your mouth because God might be using you at that very moment because we don't understand the ways and the sovereignty of God in salvation and so therefore we speak indiscriminately. God's primary means by which he has chosen to save people is by bringing them into contact with his gospel. It isn't through creation, as I said. It isn't through just the witness of our life. It's through the opening of our mouths and the speaking of the saving work of Christ. So it's not for us to ask whom or who he has or will save. Right? Right? but rather to indiscriminately speak so that all would hear and that through hearing, those he would call would come unto him. So the second is this. The first is God's sovereignty produces a necessity to witness. The second, it produces a duty to witness. Those are different things, the necessity and the duty. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to proclaim the message of the gospel. It's wrong for us not to within the mandate of God, within the spoken will of God, the revealed will of God, is that we would proclaim the message of the gospel. Therefore, our silence is wrong. I'm telling you, I'm being convicted of this as much as my enthusiasm towards you is this morning. So this is not me saying, shape up or ship out, people. You're getting voted off the island. I was thinking about this as I prepared, two, th- two, two questions came to mind. The first one is this, question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Do you guys know the answer? Say it louder, Michael. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think I said this recently, we want to enjoy him forever before we glorify him sometimes. We're looking to derive the great benefit of that calling in life. But what is the primary? The enjoyment is found in the giving him glory. So it's our duty to proclaim because we are called, we are created to glorify him. And the second question that came to mind was out of Luke chapter 10. What is the greatest commandment Jesus has asked? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, What does he say to end it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. To proclaim the gospel is to fulfill both our aim in bringing God glory and fulfilling our commandment to love one another. Those are commandments. The shorter catechism is a commandment, but it's within scripture to give God glory in all that we do whether we eat, whether we sleep, whether we drink, let it all be the glory of God. Those are commandments. We have a duty before Christ, both to give him glory and to love. How do we show love? By speaking to what is true. When people are in places of hurt, in places of need, by seeking them out, by loving them. And how do we love them? By preaching what is true to their area of need in their life. God's choosing of whom he saves, when, has no bearing on our duty to proclaim the message of the gospel. In fact, I would say it's quite the opposite. The command to proclaim and to witness to the gospel is part of God's will and therefore required law for our lives. Let me say that again. To co- the commandment to proclaim and to witness of the gospel is part of God's will. We can all agree on that. And therefore, required law for our life. To not do so is to act against God's stated will as a Christian. And lastly, point three is this. The sovereignty of God produces an urgency to witness. So it produces a necessity. There's a duty to witness. And there's an urgency to witness. People are lost and stand beneath the wrath of God. When you look at your family who's unbelieving, when your best friend who's unbelieving, when your neighbor who's unbelieving, whoever that is that is close, whom you love, look at them as they are. They stand as vessels of wrath beneath God. You've probably heard this said before, an illustration that's common to this is, if you knew a man who was asleep in a burning building, would you not try to wake him so as to save his life? It sounds contrived, but it's true. Is it not? I've got to tell you the story. I had a neighbor come. I put some ash in my trash can. And it was raining, and I thought the embers were gone, but they weren't, and it caught my trash can on fire. And like two o'clock in the morning, some guy was riding his bike down the street, and he saw the trash can on fire, and he started banging on my door, and he went to my windows, and he was banging on my windows. Unfortunately, he was inebriated, so that didn't help. But that's not the point of the story in this regard) He was banging on our windows yelling, fire, 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 fire. And then he went to our front door and he yelled, fire, fire, fire. And I was on the phone with the sheriff's department. That's what I was doing. So I was awake. And then he went to my neighbor's house and he was banging on her door. And she woke up and she grabs my garden hose and she's out dousing in her jammies my trash can at like 2.30 in the morning. She's an awesome neighbor. Meanwhile, (laughs) no, I won't tell you meanwhile, there's not time. It's a funny story though. But the point is, that's the type of life that we are to live as a believer. There's a fire. Loud, exuberant, with a sense of urgency. Uninebriated. (laughs) A sense of clarity and sobriety of heart and mind. There's certain death that awaits you if you do not awake and come and put your trash can out. See, I think when we think of our relationships in light of this, it affects the way we approach them. It affects what we say, how we say it, what we do, the way that we interact. When we know that there are those who don't believe, when we think of them in light of where they stand before God, it ought to shake us, it ought to compel us, it ought to move us. And we won't look at it because of time, but directly following that statement in Luke chapter 10, the the person who asked the question, he's a lawyer, and he says, you you know, he he asked, he asked what is the greater commandment in the law, and Jesus says that. And then it says, but desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And immediately, Jesus launches into the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. And I was thinking about that in terms of both the urgency, the necessity, and the duty. The Good Samaritan envelops all of those, it, it's, a, it's a picture of, of all of those truths. And I was thinking, when we think of loving one another in terms of caring for each other, oftentimes, But this love that we're called to, this brotherly love, to love your neighbor, it goes so much deeper and beyond just basic care. When we see, when we look and read that parable of the Good Samaritan, what we see is something so much deeper and more profound. What does he do? He binds up his wounds. He frees him from debt. And he gives to him who is poor and is needy. What does that sound like? Isaiah chapter 61, this is the year of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach because he has anointed me to preach the good news. Those very things are found here in the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the type of love that we are to show and to have, not just caring for basic needs while those are good, but to speak to the deeper, more truer, more impacting state of the heart and the lives of men and women. That's what God is saying in this parable. It goes beyond just giving him what he needed in that moment. I think this is, it's a beautiful picture. I want to just end with this, and then we're going to respond. Oh, I can't. Yes, I will. Because this is beautiful, and I feel like. Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus again spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven... May be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent another servant saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as you may find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. What a beautiful picture of the heart of God. The kingdom of God The universal invitation to come. Are we not his servants to go out into into the streets and into the roads and to call those to the feast of the king? To come into that place. To come and to enjoy him. To come and find hope and faith and love and restoration and healing and reconciliation and all of the many, many benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. So while I might not have delved in intentionally into the waters of universal and particular atonement, I want to stir us today that God is sovereign, he is at work within all of creation, but we are the chosen instruments as Christians, as believers in Christ Jesus, to tell of the great hope, to speak of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we must do so. And we must do so with a sense of urgency and a sense of clarity in our hearts and minds. And we ask that the Lord would give us grace. Would you stand with me? Will the musicians come back up, please? I'm going to pray. And then we're going to worship just for a a few minutes. And before we break today, I want to give an opportunity for us to encourage each other. I want to, as I said at the beginning, I want to cultivate a culture of both expectation of God speaking to us and God speaking through us, which is what Alan was talking about last week, but also a culture of response which is somewhat of what, it's what we did last week, where we're responding in that moment to what God is speaking to us. We're listening to hear from God and we're wanting to respond, whether it's to his word through the scriptures or whether it's just to a sense of what his spirit is saying to us. So let me pray and then let's worship just to end it and I'll turn it over to one of the elders to close us. Lord, we come before you with great humility first and foremost, to recognition that we are your creatures, that you have created us for good works, as your scripture tells us. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into this kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your Son. And Lord, I ask that you would stir within us a sense of this reality that urgency exists, that necessity exists, that duty exists within your sovereign plan to save those whom you've chosen. Lord, I ask that you would help us to shake free from the things that have withheld us. Whether it's the weight or whether it's sin that has restrained us, Lord God, and that we would run this race that has been marked out. Lord, I pray for the grace of God to be activated in our life, to speak when opportunity presents itself, to be ready for those holy interruptions, Lord God, that you would bring before us to not be bogged down by earthly distractions, Lord, but to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek first to glorify God and therefore enjoy all that you have for us. Lord, we pray for those who have not yet come to faith that you have called unto yourself. And we ask, Lord, that this church would be a mobilized church and a vehicle for the kingdom of God, for the proclamation of the gospel in the city of Sacramento and its surrounding areas that you would use us mightily, Lord, to accomplish what you will. And I pray, Father, if there's unbelief in the name of Jesus, that you would restore faith and expectation. Help us to obey the mandate. Help us to see the necessity in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.